Thank you very much. Let me, let me open again in a word of prayer, please. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your mercies. And Abba, Father, I pray your blessing on this time. That you would pour out power from the Holy Spirit on each heart in this room. Father, each one I know is precious to you. Abba, I know that each heart has pains or struggles or joys. You know where each one is at. Lord, speak to their hearts, I pray. Speak to them. Father, the grace of God move on their hearts. May Jesus Christ be glorified. And Father, I pray that as a result of this evening, patterns in lives would change. That they would be drawn closer to you, closer to your word, closer in relationship to you through the scriptures. Father, increase their love and desire to know you through the word of God. Because of this night, Father, I pray that they would not forget this night. And I offer this to you for the glory of my Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. What I'd like to do today is, is first talk a little bit about the work that we do in, in nanotechnology. And then, after I've spoken about this, move into a message which is actually more important to me. And that's, that's about what the scriptures have meant to me in my life. But I want to just give you a taste of some of the things that we do, some of the work that we do that, that I really love. I, I, I enjoy my work so much. I was telling Dave, I, I go home in the, in the evenings because I get hungry and tired. If I didn't get hungry and tired, I wouldn't even know what hour it is because I enjoy my work that much. I really enjoy the work of my hands. So let me give you just a, a taste of this. This is a nano car. Its, it's weight is 9.4 times 10 to the minus 24 kilograms as opposed to 280,000 kilograms for the largest vehicle known. This is a, a picture that came out of the Zeitz magazine in, in Germany. And we gave them a picture of one of our nano cars. These are the four wheels. We only see the wheels in this optical measurement. Uh, it's actually not an optical technique. It's, it's using scaling tunnel microscopy. And only the highest density of straight state part of the structure will show up. And that's the wheels. And why would we want to make a car that's 10 to the minus 24 kilograms when we can make a car that's 280,000 kilograms? So, so remember, this is, this is uh, about 30 orders of magnitude. This is a lot. Let me give you an idea of, of, of the, what's involved here. The, one of these wheels is about three water molecules across in length. Let me give you an idea of how small water really is. When you swallow one swallow of water, you've swallowed about one mole of water. Remember, mole, six times ten to the twenty-third molecules. So how, many, how much really is that? If you have 500 sheets of paper, we say something is paper thin. If we have 500 sheets of paper, it's about two and a half inches high. Stick that in the laser printer. If we had six times ten to the twenty-third sheets of paper, which is the number of molecules of water you swallow in one swallow of water, that stack of paper would reach from the earth to the sun 400 million times. So you would have 400 million stacks of paper from the earth to the sun if you had a mole of paper, 6 times 10 to the 23rd sheets of paper. 
One water, uh, three water molecules across is about the wheel on this. The reason we want to make these is because we want to do what God does, ex vivo. In other words, God has nature's nanomachines that he has made that picks up molecules and assembles things. We have about 2,000 enzymes working in our body that, that stitch us together. And we are built from the bottom up. When we want to make something as human beings, we generally go out and we find a big tree, we cut it down, we make a podium. That's top-down fabrica fabrication. God generally builds from the bottom up. Where molecules come together with certain interactions, those are thermodynamically driven, but then there are... There are there's enzymatic assembly, and to have irregular structure, complex structure, which is what we are. We are not like a crystal that's just regular ABAB or AAA pattern. We are complex assembly. To do that, you have to have nanomachines. Nature's nanomachines are enzymes. We want to do this outside of living organisms where, where enzymes don't work very well. So we could, for example, build a computer memory. So that in 100 years or 200 years, one would take nano vehicles and use these and program these using external stimuli to build from the bottom up so that buildings around us would be constructed just like the, the tree was constructed. There's nothing magical about the construction of the tree that was not made from some larger tree. That was made from the bottom up. We could think of building like that. And if you say, well, this is science fiction, it is now, but it's ubiquitous. We see it all around us. We are products of bottom-up construction. This is the way God builds. We will build like that someday. You say, well, it's slow. It's not that slow. In fact, there's some strains of grass which go two feet tall in a single day. You increase that by an order of magnitude, you'd have 20 feet tall in a single day. That's faster than we normally build buildings. And the degree of sophistication in that blade of grass is more than the sophistication in this building. This is what we want to be able to do someday. Small entities, for example, hemoglobin, each heme only picks up one molecule of oxygen. So how can we survive? Because we pick up, it picks up oxygen in the lungs, carries it to some starving cell, drops it off there, and then detoxifies the cell by carrying out CO2. So just as we fill a truck in New York and send it to L.A., we don't send the truck back from L.A. to New York empty. We refill it. <clears throat> this is exactly what's done in nature. That heme didn't have its own power source. It was pushed around by the global pumping of the heart. So you can have small entities, but how can we survive if it's only carrying one molecule of oxygen? It's because we have 10 of the 2013s carrying oxygen for us. So it's not how much cargo can be carried, it's how many cargo carriers have you that is going to win at the end of the day. <clears throat> so the idea is to make little cargo carriers. So this is how we synthesize these <clears throat> and we start with a compound called orthobromoanilin, and I know I'm bringing back memories of organic chemistry. Organic chemistry is a great subject. But what we do is we, we do coupling reactions, and we build up the molecules in this way, and then we put the wheels on. It took us about six months to go to chassis, <clears throat> uh, and it took us about four years to put the wheels on, just learning how to do that. Organic chemistry is not for cowards. It's... Uh, you suffer with depression, it's not a field for you. But, but it's a tremendous field when, when, when there is success. So we were able to get wheels on. This is, in fact, our fourth generation car. Call this the Z car, because when I was growing up, I really wanted a Datsun 240Z. And I could never have one. So we, we named this the Z car, because it, it kind of looks like a letter Z. But you see, it has fully rotating axles. Each wheel is made out of a carbon-60 molecule. <clears throat> the, uh, the chassis... Can, can, uh, uh, the, the axles can 
can rotate 360 degrees relative to the chassis. And this was built in and the top and bottom are the same, so it didn't matter how this would land on the surface. Forward and back is the same. This was all constructed in this way. Uh, there was no randomness in this. The wheels, the, the axles being able to spin 360 degrees, I got this idea from my sons when they were growing up. They had these cars where these axles could spin around. And it allowed the car to climb up obstacles. And it turned out to be really important as we were building these. If you look by scanning tunneling microscopy, this is what they look like. They're 2 nanometers by 3 nanometers. We can park 30,000 of these across the diameter of a human hair. And, and these are some of the first pictures that we got of some of these nanocars. Here's a nanocar, you see the four wheels. Here's a nanocar, you see two wheels. But what's happened is that's a nanocar that's landed on its edge. As if you were standing on the building and somebody were to pull a car up and a tow truck were to put it on its side and you look down off the building, you would only see two wheels because that's, that's the perspective that you have. And so this is a nanocar on its side. There's, there's uh, some here that have three wheels, and it's really not three wheels. What it is, it's the two, and then one of the axles is, is, is vertical. And so you only see the perspective of the one wheel there. We're going to see this car turn. Because it's a rectangle, we can tell which way it's going. And so it turns, and it's going to start moving across this surface. And there it is. There's the first nano collision ever recorded. <laughs> the, these... These lighter features, this is a gold surface, uh, uh, and these lighter features are one atomic step islands that are found on the gold. And, and we can see these cars driving. I had a colleague at Yale University, when we were working on this project, uh, he emailed me. He said, uh, I heard you're working on something called nanocars. Uh, if I were you, I would let that project quietly slip away. You'd be violating at least one law of thermodynamics. Now, there's only three laws of thermodynamics. So I replied, what is the one that I'd be violating? What's the other one that I might be violating? Because I'd, I'd be violating at least one law of thermodynamics. And he had no response for me. And this happens all the time in science. The easiest thing to do is give five reasons why something won't work. But what happens is movers and shakers go in and they do it anyway. These cars are not sliding like a car, uh, like a car on ice. There actually is directional motion. So they may hit something and then pivot, but they continue going in, in a certain direction. And if they were sliding like a car and ice, you would expect the three-wheel version to slide as well, but it doesn't. It only pivots around its axis. So this is, again, indication that these are rolling, and, and there is a rolling motion. And there's a lot of science and a lot of engineering that goes behind this. But we've done other things with this. Here's, here, here's this suspension system that we built in. Here's the one atomic step up. A car comes up and then slides back down. Another one comes up. And this was important to build in, this suspension in the nanocars to get them to move. We also showed that we could get the nanocars to move in an electric field because ultimately the way we're going to want to use these is use an electric field to move these in one direction and another. Just like you have a big city, all the cars moving in in, in, in the morning and then moving out in the evening, moving them back and forth with electric fields so that you can begin to get construction, programming in information, just like hemoglobin is there, just like enzymes are there to build us. Again, this is not magical, just trying to understand what God does all the time. And we can put an electric field and the nanocar will move and follow the field. If we put the field on the side, the car can't roll sideways, so it doesn't move. Uh, many people said you didn't have a car. We don't have a car until we have a motor. But remember, hemoglobin doesn't have its own motor. In biology, think structures are much larger before they have their own motors. So, for example, a flagellum. 
Well, there are molecules that are known within organic chemistry that can rotate in only one direction if you shine light on them. And the reason they only rotate in one direction, there's two modes, there's two elements of chirality here. You may remember that term, this, this term of a non-superimposable mirror image. There's two elements there. There's a chiral center there, and there's a chiral axis there. And so what happens is when this shines light, it goes through a orthogonal arrangement. And then in relaxing down, there's two ways it can go that are diastereotopic in energy. The difference in energy, so it keeps going down the lower energy side. It causes these molecules to rotate in one direction. So we had to take these now and somehow figure out how to build them into a car. So the idea is that we would build these mid-chassis to rotate so that as they rotate, they would push like a paddle wheel off of the surface and drive the car along the surface in that way. That was the idea, and all we would have to do then is shine light and get the car to rotate on the surface. And that way, these would have, be much smaller than any biological system that has a motor in it. These are billions of times smaller in volume than any biological motor. But again, we're, we're going in with a design like this, and so we were able to build these motors into this car. And, and you can actually see the motor hangs out over one side more than the other, and you can see this in the STM. The problem with this motor turned out to be quite slow. It only gave 1.8 rotations per hour. It's a slow motor. <laughs> so we changed the ring size here, and now what happens is it rotates at 3 megahertz. That's 3 million rotations per second. That's faster than any macroscopic motor could ever go. It would fly apart, but at the nanoscale, they stay together because we're dealing with quantum effects now. And so we built this motor in, and so here's a motorized nanocar, and it rotates at three, 3 megahertz. So we can build motors in. We built motors that have all sorts of features. We've, so we've, we've built motors uh, uh, that, that, that could run on, on heat, on light, chemical power, hydrogen, ethylene. We've built all of these. We've built sensors and actuators into them. We've built axles and bearings, lots of different wheels. We've built nano trucks and nano trains, things that have cargo-carrying ability. This is what we've built in. This is, this is part of the dream world of nanotechnology. It's, there's going to be no delivery in this for, I don't know, 50 years, 100 years. We, we have no patents in this area because the patents would long expire before this is going to become a useful field. But that's okay. This is, this is what governments should fund. They should fund a... <laughs> it, it, they should fund a portfolio of things, things that are near-term, things that are mid-term, and things that are long-term because these are the technologies that will, will drive the future. So that's we're, we're, what we want to do. So now I want to switch topics and I want to talk about, about Scripture's impact on me and the topics to be addressed are my coming to faith, is there a prescription for thriving in God? Practical application of the Scriptures, how God blesses us differently, hard work coupled with a balanced family life, and I'll give you a take-home message. And then I, I can't leave without mentioning our work in Scriptural Sexual Ethics um, because working with young people, which I do a lot, uh, this, this is, this is a, an area that's, that's extremely important. And then if there's time, I'll take questions at the end. So my coming to faith. I was born a Jew in New York City, and I am still a Jew, and I will die a Jew. I'm a child of Abraham. I was circumcised on the eighth, uh, on the, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And I went to college. And uh, I started meeting Christian people, and they were interesting folks. And I, and I had never met born-again Christians before in my life. And it, that was a time when people used that terminology of being born-again Christians. And I guess it, it fell out of vogue with Jimmy Carter. But, but at the time, it was, it was actually a very important term. It was used a lot. And I was in the laundry room at Syracuse University. Uh, and it was early on. It was probably August or September of my freshman year. 
and I was doing my laundry, and there was another guy doing laundry, and he lived on my floor. And we got to talking, and he was on the Syracuse University football team. He was a quarterback, and, and I asked him, did you want to play football when you get done with college? He says, oh, I'm not good enough for that. I said, well, what do you want to do? He says, oh, probably lay ministry. Lay ministry. What, what's lay ministry? He says, oh, like being a missionary. Missionary. I thought all missionaries are dead. <laughs> I didn't know there were any missionaries. I grew up as a Jew just outside of New York City. I didn't even know that there was a claim on the table that Jesus Christ had died for my sins. It wasn't a matter of my closing myself off to this. I didn't even know there was this claim. When I went to elementary school, everybody was Jewish except for the, 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 the black students that they would bus in from the projects. And I thought either you were Jewish or you were black. I didn't know anything about anything in between. And he, he, he said that he wanted to come to my room and share with me. He was with Navigators Campus Ministry. And I said, you can come to my room anytime and share with me all you like. So he came to my room a few days later and he shared with me this verse. He had me read this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I looked at him and I said, I'm, I've not sinned. And sin is not a concept in modern secular Judaism, which, which I was quite secular. Uh, we never discussed God very much. We went to the synagogue once or twice a year and we were good to go. And uh, uh, my sins were dealt with once a year and the rabbi took care of that. And I didn't have to worry about that. And when I read this, and I said, I'm not a sinner, and he looked at me and said, you're not a sinner? I said, no, I'm not a sinner. So he showed me another verse. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I was 18 years old. <laughs> I, I didn't even finish my sentence. I was 18 years old. And I was addicted to pornography at the age of 18. In fact, I got addicted to pornography at the age of 14. I started working in a gas station on the Hutchison River Parkway going into New York City. And there were two gas stations, one on either side of the road, and I worked them both. And, and I told the owner I was 16. They didn't check much paperwork in those days. And one of my first tasks was to clean the, the, uh, the parking lot. Then I noticed that the salesmen would drop off their magazines on their way home on Friday nights. And the magazines, I started to collect them. And I became addicted to pornography at the age of 14. I also became manager of the two gas stations at the age of 14 because I was the only one who could read and write amongst all the people that worked there. But I became addicted. And for those of you who have ever been addicted to pornography... It grabs hold, and it doesn't let go. And I thought, for the rest of my life, I will be here. And there was no internet in those days, and so it's much easier now. But I didn't have to go find the magazines. They came to me. And when he had me read this verse, it was as if I had been stabbed in the heart. Because all of a sudden, I realized, I'm a sinner. And I said to him, if this is the definition of sin... I'm a sinner. And it was just as if something were stabbing me, just in the heart. Something happened. Then he had me read another verse. 
But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he drew me this picture of this cross between this chasm that had separated man and God. And Jesus made a way. I had never known that. I'm sure I must have heard it. I must have heard it on TV and things. It never registered. All of a sudden I knew that someone claims to have died for my sin. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved in Romans 10.9. He had me read that. That if I would confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, I mean, how could there be, how could any human being believe in something so incredible? How could any thinking human being believe in this? Believe in the resurrection of the dead? This is a pretty hard thing. And something happened about a month and a half later. Not of November 7th, 1977. I was in my room all alone. Same room he had shared with me. Lawrence and Dormitory on Syracuse University campus, room 1812. And I don't know what prompted me to do this. I had never seen it modeled to me in my life, but I got down on my knees and I asked God to forgive me. Because I was a sinner. And I said, Lord, come into my life. And I just started weeping. And there was a presence in the room. Somebody was standing in my room with me. And I opened my eyes. And I couldn't see anybody. But somebody was there. His presence was just there. And I started weeping. And I couldn't get up. I didn't want to get up. And all of a sudden, I started feeling this burden of sin lift from me. Just lift. Lift. And I started to feel different than I had ever felt before in my life. Something happened to me on that night. Something else happened to me on that night. I have worked with many people who have had sexual sins. I did prison ministry in a maximum security prison for ten years. I have never seen what happened to me on that night. That night... I was delivered from addiction to pornography. I don't know why God did that, but I do know one thing. He used my addiction to pornography to convict me of my sin. And He used deliverance from pornography to convince me that something really happened in my life. All the magazines went. And to this day, I've never been drawn back to pornography. And You know, when you hit the wrong keystroke and you're surfing the web and something pops up, I just click it away. This was unusual. I have many other struggles in my life that I've had to deal with over the history of my Christian life. Many others. But this one, he delivered me from. Something happened to me on that night. He walked up to me, this this young man who had shared with me, he walked up to me two weeks later. I never told anybody. I was a Jew. I didn't even know really what was going on. And he said to me, Jim, have you received the Lord? I said, well, I think I have. Why do you ask? He said, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. (laughs) And he's right. Something had really hit me. I was a typical youth. I had had fantasies of suicide and and the things that, that youth struggle with. And this just lifted. Something happened to me on that night. And then he shared with me. He gave me a little Gideon's New Testament. And he said... 
you know, I've, I've seen people come to the Lord and I've seen people fall away. And I always ask the people who fall away, I ask them, were you reading your Bible when you fell away from the Lord and drifted away? And they always say no. And then I ask people who stay with the Lord, do you read your Bible consistently? They say yes. And that was a very easy prescription for me. You read your Bible, you're going to stay close to the Lord. You don't, you won't. How do we remain close to God? Is there a way to thrive in God? Is there a way to do this? To really remain close to God? I wanted this. I would always think, am I going to fall away? Is this joy that I have in the presence of my Lord, am I going to lose this? I don't want to lose this. Is there a prescription for thriving? I will take a few verses and share them with you. Ones that have meant particularly a lot to me. But there are many verses about this. Psalm 1 says, verse 1 through 3, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Let me say right up front, the prosperity that I'm talking about is not money. The prosperity is a closeness to God. A closeness to God. Living in Houston, I have a lot of oil trader friends that make a lot of money. They want what I have. And I have no desire for what they have. This goes far beyond wealth. I don't want that. In fact, everything, anything that I want in life, I can afford right now. I can. Because my wants are very small. I just, my family, my research, church, that's it. You can say, you know, you ever go to the museums in Houston? Never. There's a girl from my home to my lab to my church, and that's it's just triangle. This is all I do. This is what I love. But here, here it says there's prosperity and I wouldn't slip away. It says that, that others may be drying up, but I'm going to be bearing fruit. But what I learned as a Jew, one thing I learned is this. The Bible is very specific. And it says, if you meditate day and night. This is a promise for day and night meditation. If you meditate on your Bible three times a week, I don't know if there's a blessing. There's no promised blessing. Maybe there is. I don't know. But there's a promised blessing for day and night. That I know. There's blessings we fall into just by being human beings. There's blessings we fall into just by being believers. But this one is coupled to an act of obedience. It's coupled to day and night meditation. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. That then says, you meditate on it day and night. Another, another promise of success that comes by daily meditation. I don't know what your success will be. Remember, men of whom the world was not worthy were tortured. I don't know what your success is going to be, but I do know that you will succeed. 
if you do this. Why? Because I didn't write this. God did. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I have probably meditated on this verse more than any other verse in the Bible, because I find this fascinating. It doesn't say that that I would have more insight than all my Bible teachers. It says, than all my teachers. I worked for a man... When I got my PhD, a Japanese man, that I didn't know that 30 years later, that Japanese man in 2010 would win the Nobel Prize in chemistry. He says, you'll have more insight than all your teachers. That's what it says. But again, it is my meditation all the day. If I make the Word of God my meditation. You know, I'm over 50 years old. I'm a grandfather. But I carry a pocket full of scriptures that I meditate on. I've been doing this since I was a kid. People say, this is childish. <laughs> Not for me. And I take, I take portions of scripture and I would take an entire chapter. I just start meditating on this thing until I got it. And I've done this with my children. You know, from the day they come home from the hospital, I pick them up from their crib in the morning and we gather at 5.30 in the morning for our family devotions and, and uh, we all recite our scriptures together, what we're memorizing. We memorize the same portions. When they're little, we just say, say the Lord is my, and they say, shepherd. They say, the Lord is my, they say, shepherd. It's the first verse. All my children cut their teeth on that verse, saying, shepherd. Because I really believe this. I really believe this. If you make the Word of God your meditation. Every day, every day, something will happen because he promises that. Let me just go over with you a few practical applications, things that have happened in my life. This happens all the time, all the time, things that happen to me where the scripture speaks into my life. The primary way that I hear from God is I hear from God through the scriptures. And I know God speaks in diverse portions in many ways and through people and all sorts of stuff. God can speak to our hearts all the time, and I, I hear things in my mind, not audi- audibly, all the time. And, and I wonder, is it God or not? I mean, I, you know, I hear this thing, you turn the corner, and there's going to be a parking space for you. And sometimes there is, and sometimes there isn't. So obviously, this is me. I mean, I have this ability. I can speak to myself, in my own mind. <laughs> but the scriptures speak very clearly to me. When I, when I was in uh, graduate school, my wife and I used to invite students into our home. And, and we'd, have a, we'd always use food. My, my wife was one of these amazing women who there could be no food on the table and, and people start coming and she can go to a refrigerator and in 15 or 20 minutes have a whole meal set out. This is a gift. Not everybody can do this. She can do this. She's amazing. And, and we would invite students in our home one night a week, and we'd feed them a meal, and then we'd share the scriptures. And it started to bother me. What bothered me was that the students were slobs. They, they didn't mean to be, they just inherently this way. College students are this way. And, and um, I remember seeing the guys walk in, and they'd have boots on, and they wouldn't even wipe their feet, and the snow would just be falling off their boots. They wouldn't even kick the snow off. And 
we had a daughter. She was one year old at the time. And I remember her crawling up behind these guys and eating the snow that was coming off their feet. And it bothered me. And then I remember one day my daughter was sitting on the couch a few days after we had had a meeting and she was chewing on a chicken bone that she had found behind the pillow on the couch. And I know the guys that did this because I had seen the meeting and they were laughing and stuff was falling off their place onto the couch. And I thought, maybe we just shouldn't have them in the home. Just wanted to protect my little apartment. And then I was reading the scriptures and one day I just... And and what I do is I read the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. And when I'm done, I start again. And I just pick up reading where I left off the day before. And I just read it from beginning to end, beginning to end. And I've been doing this for over 30 years. And that day, I was reading in the Scriptures. And I know what happens is as I'm reading, my eyes just focus in on a portion and I can't get past it. And I know God's speaking to me. And I said, Lord, what are you saying to me through this passage? Lord, speak to me. You won't let me find it. And I have no drive to get through the Bible in a year. No way. I can't get through the Bible in a year. I sometimes will spend a week in a paragraph. But this is just God's feeding me. And then when I feel I'm filled up on this portion, then I start reading on. And I knew God was speaking. And then all of a sudden, Realize. It says, where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. And God spoke to my heart, you can keep your little stinking apartment clean by not having them in there, in your apartment. But if you want to see the strength of God in their lives, you're going you're to have a little mess here. And I said, Lord, from this day, my home will always be open to you and to your service. Always, always, always be open to you. And to this day, we have 40 to 50 students in our home every week. 40 to 50 students in our home. And my wife serves every one of them. And we have never and we never will take up a donation. There's no way. God provides for us. And, and the house gets trashed. And, 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 you know, we have groups of 40 or 50 people in. Just last night, we had a fellowship of Christian athletes needed a place for end-of-the-year dinner. I said, our home. Our home. You know why? Because... because um, there was a man named Obed-Edom, and David was moving the ark, and he was a Gittite. He wasn't even a Jew, and they moved, they moved the ark into the house of Obed-Edom after that, that outburst. And, and uh, it was told to David, hey, you know, that house of Obed-Edom, he is so blessed. God is blessing everything in his house. And you know what David said? He said, get the ark out of his house and get it up to my house. <laughs> I wanted the ark of God in my house. That my house is going to be used for this. And now we can afford a maid. We, we have 40 students in every Sunday afternoon, and we have a maid comes Monday morning, and she helps to clean up. Now we can afford a maid. I mean, God provides. God provides. And we got a guy, I mean, he's a painter, he's a fix-it man. I pay him $10 an hour. His name is James, and it's great. You know, people say, how do you keep it like this? James does it. People think it's me. They think I do it. But James paints, and he, you know, takes care of things. We've done that. We've always opened up our home because God spoke to my heart that day when I was in graduate school. September 3rd, 1993, I was invited back to Purdue University. I had, uh, I'd been in a, I had just gotten tenure and you know, many people said to me I would never get tenure because I always put a scripture verse on the top of my exams. And I always, even as an assistant professor, 
Oh, it's a pretty scripture verse. I didn't know that I could possibly get in trouble. I just did it. Nobody ever bothered me. And uh, I remember start, students started writing scripture verses. And they wrote on their exam book, uh, uh, Blessed are the merciful. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we would share scriptures back and forth. I remember one day, uh, uh, the dean brought me in and, and he said, um, he had some questions about this and questions about some things I had handed out at the end of the semester. In fact, I had, didn't hand them out. I strategically left them up there. And when you hand in your exam, you can take this piece of paper. I said, this is a gift from me to you. You can take it if you want. And it was my testimony. And I was giving it out to the class and I got brought in by the dean and he, he was all bent out of shape on this thing. And, and uh, so the next exam, I didn't put a scripture verse. Because I would normally take a, a, a really mild one, something from Psalms, something about how God loves us. Nothing, nothing really, really intense. But this, this time I put George Washington, I quoted George Washington, where he talked about God's holy son blessing our nation. So then I presented to the dean after I had given this exam and, and the provost, I said, what part of the founding father of this country am I allowed to quote and what part am I not allowed to quote? No university is going to touch that, of course. <laughs> and so then they all became my friends. And, and, and I really did have a very close relationship with them. Very close. And I've always been close with the presidents of the universities. And I've, I've always pushed them on certain issues. I remember when the students were... This was I was teaching at the State University. And the students were selling condoms. Condom grams at Valentine's Day. So you could buy a Valentine's Day card. And it wasn't just the students. It was being sold at the health center. That was the thing that bothered me. And so I didn't like the fact that the university was promoting this. So I, got, I bought 30 of them. I put them all in a box and I sent them to the president. I said, I have enough here for you and everyone on the board of trustees so that you can share it with them. So they can see what's being sold by the state health center. And... He wrote me a letter back. He said, Jim, I understand what you're talking about. Thank you. When I left the University of South Carolina, he brought me into his office. He brought me and he said, called in all his staff. He says, I want you to know why we've been so blessed all these years. It's because this guy here. Because I see him going on campus every day to the chapel and praying. And I've always done that. I've always gone to the chapel every day on campus to pray. These men became my friends. And we had, we had a dynamic relationship. And it was fun. But I enjoyed them. And uh, so September 3rd, 1993, I was invited back to Purdue University to give a talk. And, and uh, I knew my Japanese professor would be there. And what happened was, whenever I would bring him a result as a graduate student, he would always say, pretty good for your level. Even if it was a really great result, I could never get above his weight. And I didn't want that to happen. Here I was coming and I was going to be talking about my own independent research program and all I had done. And... And I didn't, I, I wanted something to happen, and I was praying that day in, in, in the hotel. I always pray before I give a lecture, and I was praying that morning in the hotel. And I was reading in the scriptures that day, and I read this verse that morning. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. So I said, Lord, you're really raising my faith through this. So I pray that my seminar today will be the best seminar ever in that department. And I said, well, how will I know? How do I know it's going to be the best? 
going to have to give me some sign. I, I pray that my, my Japanese professor says that it was a super seminar. And this is not a, nor, a word that he used. So we wanted him to say that it was super. None of this stuff. <laughs> so when I gave that seminar, I knew God had really blessed and God really anointed. And, and I, by the way, I got tenure in three years. You know, I didn't even go to the full seven years. It just came upon me. By, by five years, I was a full professor with a chair, with an endowed chair. I mean, God has a way of opening doors and blessing, but here I was describing, and I got done with the seminar, and I knew God had really blessed, because I prayed that the Holy Spirit would hit everybody in that room. If you're in a church, and this happens, you expect it, but it, you don't expect it in a chemistry lecture hall, but I knew God would honor this prayer. And he stood up from that chair in the front row, and this Japanese man, and I remember, he stood up, he raised his hand, he said, Suma! Suma! <laughs> Sitting right behind him was a man named H.C. Brown who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1985. And, I, and my professor had worked for him. And so I walked up and I shook his hand and he was sitting on the end, end there and I shook his hand and he was still sitting there. I said, thank you for coming to the seminar today. And he held on to my hand. He said, I want you to know something. And, and, and the guy was, was in his 80s at the time. He said, I want you to know that was the best seminar I've ever seen in my entire life. And I said, that's very kind of you to say that. And in typical Nobel Prize winning fashion, he said, I'm not saying it to be kind, I really mean it. <laughs> God really can confirm his word. He raises our faith through the scriptures. He speaks to us specific things and then he raises our faith. One time I was set with a colleague. We had hired this, this, this Professor, and he, he came in the year after I did. We each had our slots, and 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 uh, he had come from Caltech, and he was very good and, and, and everything. But he, he came to my office one day, and he said, "You know, I'd only been there a year. You'd only been there a few months." He said, "I'll get tenure before you ever do." <laughs> That's a very strange thing to say. That's like walking up to somebody and saying, "I'm better looking than you are." You know, even if it's true, just to say it makes you sound really ugly. It was difficult for me to get along with in many ways. And, and uh, I had my little metal student desk and all the concrete floor. And After a few years, I had a big wooden desk and a secretary and outer office and an inner office and carpeting. And uh, um, he had his little metal desk. I mean, nothing was happening. And then a student came in and she said to me, you know, this is an undergrad. She said, you know, I took your course. I really like you, but that professor across the hall is always saying bad stuff about you. And I thought, that's the worst thing you can do at a university is tell an undergraduate something. And this is fired. And it's in the school newspaper. They just love this kind of dirt. So I walked over to his office. I just was really wanted to, to just talk to him and say, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? What, what's your problem? And I knocked on his door and there was no answer. And God began to speak to my heart because I had been memorizing a portion of Scripture with my children. Luke 6, verse 27 and 28 says, But I say to you here, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. And I started going, when I would go on my daily trek to the chapel to pray, I started praying for him every day. I said, okay, Lord, I'll pray for him every day that you bless his career. 
prayed for every day that God blessed his career. God blessed his career. He wasn't getting any funding. Nothing was working. And I prayed for him every day. And lo and behold, he got a big NIH grant. And his, his program started growing. He started getting more students. And things started going so well for him. So well that he got an offer from another university. He took the offer and he left. And I was delighted. <laughs> God is so good. I wanted to be delivered from this. And it was as if God were saying, I'll deliver you, but it's all wrapped around your heart. Once I can deal with your heart, I'll deliver you from this. You don't, I don't want you to have to go through this the rest of your life. And He delivered me. He delivered me. The scriptures tell us what we ought to be doing. And it works out so much better. This is what meditating on the scriptures does. God blesses us differently. You're all educated here, so I can put up this long passage and it, and it won't bother you. <laughs> Hebrews 11, 30, uh, 11.32-38. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. I don't know what your blessing is going to be, but I know you will be blessed. I don't know what it's going to be, but I know you will be blessed because God said so. You will experience blessings, just, maybe just as these men did, but you'll be one of whom the world is not worthy when God starts blessing you with these things, you will get this through daily meditation. You know, in, in 2007, I had won this, this Chemical Society Award, and they, they asked me to write an article about my career. And then I knew I was getting old. When they, <laughs> some summary of this. But I, I started off writing about what it's like to be assistant professor and how, how, how important it is to have this network of people. But I, I, I wrote some other things. And... Here's, here's some quotes from the article. I submitted 37 proposals in my first 36 months as a faculty member, and most of those as single PI, since collaborative proposals were less common in those days. And I wrote a lot of proposals, and, and this more than a proposal a month, I still keep this pace. I mean, I just, you know, it's, but now I have a staff to help me. I mean, at the time I didn't, and I had, I, I had a Mac. SE with one megabyte of RAM. I mean, it was really good. And, I, and, and, and uh, you know, I'd leave a space and then I'd draw with a stencil the, the, the chemical structures, cut it out, and cut and paste had a meaning in those pages. <laughs> and then we'd make 14 copies and check every page to make sure they were all there and mail them in to the NIH. There was a lot of work in, in, in submitting proposals. On the days of receiving the declination of funding letters from the NIH, sadness certainly followed. I would always call my wife, Shireen, because she was repeatedly there to reassure me of my self-worth, and my children were still there to call me daddy. Hence, I endeavored to dwell only momentarily on the harsh, sometimes even unnecessarily personal comments of the reviewers. My family stood by me. If I could leave young people with something, don't trash your family for your career. My family has stood by me and been my strength and seen me through. 
my family has been with me. And I would wake up early in the morning and have my, my personal devotions. And then at five, and I still do this. And then at five o'clock every morning, I bring my wife a cup of tea, make sure her Bible is at her bedside, wake her up with a hot cup of tea in her Bible. And she has this time alone from five to five thirty. And at five thirty, I get the kids up and we come and have family devotions. And at six a.m., I'm out. I leave my house at six a.m. and I work till six p.m. So I work a twelve-hour day, but I'm home for dinner. I'm home for homework. I was home to sing to the kids when they were young. And, and uh, my family was there with me. So you can work hard, but don't lose your family in the process because I have seen this so many times. And people get wife number two, guys get wife number three, and after wife number three, they think, really nice wife number one wasn't all that bad. <laughs> no, I've seen them say this. I really have. And... Uh, um, you work these things out, and, and I've been to counseling. We've been, we've been to counselors, and generally what would happen is we would start sharing with counselors. They become our personal friends. They stop charging us, and, and I start counseling them. That's where they would normally end up. So I have a lot of counselor friends, but we worked this thing out because for us, divorce was never an option. We were going to work these things out, and, and, uh, and it's tough. I'm a hard person to be married to. I am. It's, it's, it's rough. I mean, sometimes I can't stand myself, but, but my wife has put up with me, and she was really there to encourage me. Here's a take-home message for you. This is what Moses said after 40 years of working with his people. I worked four years to get a PhD. Forty years. How are you going to summarize it? This is what he said. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word you will prolong your days in the land by which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. This may be an idle word to some, but for us it is our life. This is not an idle word for us. This is how he summarizes. What are you going to say after 40 years of instruction? This is what he said. Take this word to heart. It's not an idle word for you. This is your life. You want to know what your life is? It is here in the scriptures. It is in this book. It is here. This is your life. And I tell you, in the word of God, I can see the life of people before me. I can look at young people, at students, and watch them through their lives. I'm in my 24th year of teaching as a professor. I've been on college campuses since I was 18 and I've never left. I can see what happens. They come in all full of life and then they start sinning and getting all this baggage. And you give them a decade and they're totally different. You give them another decade and they're like the living dead. And I know it's going to happen because I see it in the book. It already describes this. And then I see other students that come and start taking the Word of God and taking it seriously and practicing these things. And I see them in their marriages and their children and I see the effects of this. This is our life. You take this seriously. Believe it. It is true. It is your life. How many of you have children? 
Psalm 112, verse 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. When I finish up my, my devotions in the morning, I have the four pictures of my four children on the wall. And I look up at their pictures and I remind my father, my Abba, Father, I remind him that I remember his promise. That because I've delighted in his word, he is going to make my children mighty on this earth. That's his promise. And I remind him of this all the time. That I'm watching. <laughs> this is the promise. When I was doing prison ministry, when I could never break through to a man, he'd never give me his attention. Say, do you have children that I can pray for? Right away, they'd stop. Everybody wants the best there can be for their children. For your children's sake, make the Word of God your meditation. Philippians 4 9, the things that you have learned and received and heard, the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Everybody wants peace in their lives. Everybody wants peace. Peace comes through practice. You practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You're all stirred up in your heart. I've been there. I know what it's like. I go into my morning devotion sometimes all stirred up. How am I going to get done all the things I need to get done? I'm thinking I can't handle this. I can't do this. I can't do anything. And it, spend some time with the Lord and I come out a roaring lion. Nobody's going to stand in my way. I'm going to accomplish all of this and more. Why you just spend this time with the Lord and He changes you. Fills you from within. You practice these things, you will have peace. Peace comes through practicing these things. That's what the Scripture says. This is your take-home message. I want to just close on this. Scriptural sexual ethics. I have something on my website, jmtour.com. Scriptural sexual ethics. It's under the audio messages. And for those of you who struggle with sexual disorders, those of you who struggle, I'll tell you where, where some of the problems are. Very often, five years into a Christian marriage, a woman will feel like, you know, this guy, all he ever wants to do is he's climbing on me all the time, and the man is like, she never, never gives me enough, and, and just the bedroom becomes hell on earth. I don't know if you've ever been there. There's a solution to all of this. There really is a solution. So I, I studied for 150, 200 hours, which for me is a long time, to try to pull this thing together, to come with an audio series, because I know students, they've always got these plugs in their ears, and they're walking along, and it, it's a three-and-a-half-hour series, right, broken up into six parts. And I take them through scriptural sexual ethics because there is liberation. There's an introduction to scriptural sexual ethics. That's part one. Part two is redemption is not a sham. Victory over lust. Our redemption is in Christ is not a sham. There is victory over lust to many men. And I know it because I was there to many men. There's this feeling that if I had no lust, I wouldn't even be a man. This is all there is. How could I ever be free of this lust? And I'm telling you, 
our redemption is not a sham. There is victory over lust. C.S. Lewis dealt with this in, in The Great Divorce. This chattering lizard on the shoulder. But when you're free of that, it is like a grand stallion. It is so much better. Because there is something so much better. The true meaning of manhood. I taught, for several years, I taught a Bible study to the Houston Astros baseball team. And, and I would say to them, uh, how many of you men feel that you've attained manhood? That you're really a man now? Who would you raise their hand? I said, you know, isn't it interesting? My son puts your picture up on his wall because you're the image of a man. None of you feel quite like men. And I know what you're talking about. Because manhood has been imaged to us in one man, and that is Jesus Christ. His giving himself for the other has been demonstrated in Jesus Christ. And when he came out after the scourging, Pilate proclaimed it. He said, behold the man. Jesus has demonstrated to us manhood. We don't know what it is to be men. Jesus demonstrated that. And I go through this. What does it mean to be a man? I didn't know. I thought, I thought you had to be... You had to be handsome and tall and the life of every party and witty and winsome and a woman hanging on each arm. This is what I thought. And most of those were unattainable for me. But in Jesus Christ, we can attain man. The true meaning of womanhood or woman, God's masterpiece. What does it mean to be a woman? From the distorted image that we have today. Converting the Christian bedroom from hell on earth to heaven on earth. And what is the line for the unmarried? Talk about this in real detail. So you can have the Christian bedroom that is really heaven on earth. I would love for others to experience in their marriage what I have in my marriage. And I share this. And this is there. And what is the line for the unmarried? Very specific with this. Marriage is not a sham. Lowering the divorce rate from the current 52% in the church to the extraordinary number of less than 1%. There's a, there are a group of, of couples that have less than 1% divorce rate. And I wish it were, I could say it was from Bible meditation, scripture meditation. I'm sure that helps. Or family devotions. I'm sure that helps. But there's something else there. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But it, it goes even across. You don't even have to be a believer. Works with unbelievers too. Less than 1% divorce rate. This has been shown. That they have a particular practice in their marriage. And they have less than 1% divorce rate. I know that people these days are non-linear learners and they poke around and they listen to this and listen to that. This is linear. You start at 1. When you're done, you start on 2. Then you increase it. And then if you go to six first, it won't make any sense to you. You start here, and after three and a half hours, you're done. Uh, many people ask me, how did we run our, our family devotions? We used Hurlbut's story of the Bible. It was written in, in uh, 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 19, 1932. You want to get the 660-page edition. You can get it on Amazon. There's the ISBN number. Uh, the original version. You read this from beginning to end. It goes from Genesis to Revelation, and it's in a, in a story style. But he's dropped in great truths for adults, and he's got a picture on every page, but it's not you know, a crayon picture. It's some great painting. And, and uh, uh, it's tremendous for family devotions. 
to walk you on through, and the kids love it. And I still do it to this day until the kids leave the home. I mean, that's what we do. We read Herbert's story of the Bible in the morning, and we get on our knees together and pray for each other after we, we test each other on our scripture memorization. Here's what I covered, how I came to faith. There is a prescription for thriving in the Scriptures. There's practical applications of the Scriptures. God does bless us differently. I don't know how He'll bless you. Hard work coupled with a balanced family life, the take-home messages that this is your life, and the scriptural sexual ethics that are there. For those of you who are struggling, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm with you in this. I'm with you in this. And for those of you who know people who are struggling, it's a very low barrier to entry. You just send them on over to my website and listen to this. Let me pray for you. Father, I'm a father. I am humbled because I am before so many men and women of whom the world is not worthy, who have given themselves on the mission field, who have given themselves for others, who have sacrificed fame and fortune for others. But Father, I pray that you would speak to each heart and leave there something of this truth of daily scripture meditation, that they would take hold of this and never forget this night and make the scriptures their daily meditation, that they would see you powerfully work in their lives. Abba, bless them, I pray. Have mercy. And for those who are struggling with sexual disorder, that have brought this into marriage, that struggle with these things, Father, I pray that they would see there is a victory in you. In Jesus Christ, you have modeled all things. And that you were particularly merciful with the sexual sinner. I don't condemn you, he said. Father, I pray for victory in their lives. May your mercy and your grace abound. And I commit these wonderful and giving and generous and self-sacrificing people to you. In the name of my blessed Lord, Jesus Christ.